From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. Today's guest made me re-examine everything I thought I knew about the current state of the Catholic Church here in the U.S. Like my belief that the church here is shrinking rapidly and universally, or that people are leaving because they're angry about a specific church teaching or scandal. I recently talked with Father Tom Gaunt, SJ, a Jesuit priest who's the executive director of an organization called the Center for Applied Research in the Apostolate. That's a mouthful, so they use the acronym CARA most of the time. Since it was founded in 1964, CARA has conducted hundreds of social science studies of the Catholic Church. If you want to know how many priests were ordained last year, or how many Catholics go to Mass weekly versus once or twice a year, CARA is the place to go. I asked Father Tom to give me a bird's-eye view of the state of the Church, and that overview challenged my assumptions over and over again. There's nothing more I like in an interview than learning all kinds of new things, which made this conversation fascinating to me. I hope you have some of your own presuppositions about the church shaken up, too. Remember to subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts. And thanks for joining us. Well, Father Tom Gaunt, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. How are you? I'm doing fine today. Thank you for the invitation. No, I'm excited to chat with you about some of your work. Um, before we get into that, though, maybe for folks who uh, who don't know you, could uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you came to the Society of Jesus. Oh, well, I grew up in, uh, in a military family. My father was in the army for 32 years. And uh, as such, we traveled the world, moving every one, two years uh, between the United States and Europe and Asia. So uh, quite a, a background. I began high school in uh, Taipei, uh, Taiwan, and uh, came and finished the last two years of high school at Gonzaga in Washington, D.C. And it was there at Gonzaga that I first met the Jesuits uh, and had the, uh, I guess, a great privilege, uh, one, to to get to know as a student, Father Horace McKenna, who was active and uh, working with the homeless and the, the poor in uh, Washington. And then um, I'd probably say the other person was Brother Paul Cawthorn, uh, who's now retired. Uh, but Brother Paul uh, taught uh, modern European history. And he was uh, a, a wonderful teacher. And he was kind of that Jesuit sense of just sparking your intellect and curiosity uh, and just these lively engagements with him. And so in some ways, I think uh, my, my interest and uh, draw to the society was both kind of between Brother Paul and uh, Father Horace McKenna. So before you, you came to the Center for Applied Research in the Apostolate, or CARA, as we'll refer to it from yeah. now on, uh, for the sake of uh, brevity, um, what, what, what's your background in uh, professionally? Um, after I was ordained, I was sent supposedly for one year to uh, Hot Springs, North Carolina deep in the Southern Appalachians. And we had a little mission area there. And I began there and working with the Diocese of Charlotte. And um, one year ended up becoming 13 Hmm. uh, very quickly. So uh, in my work with the diocese, I was working with Bishop Michael Bagley, who was very strong in terms of of advocacy, social justice in Appalachia. 
And so after two years of uh, working with him on his uh, Justice and Peace Commission, uh, I went back to school and got a master's in public administration at the uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, with a focus of kind of learning local government in terms of how it best serves uh, low-income and minority communities. When I finished that uh, degree program, Bishop Bagley uh, talked the provincial into uh, assigning me to the diocese to be their first uh, director of research and planning. Hmm. And so it was at the time of the home missions and just beginning with different Catholics moving into the state uh, and some uh, migrant workers coming. This would be the early 80s. Oh, wow. And so I worked for the bishop in that role for three years. And then I went to be pastor in uh, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and had two parishes there for another three years. And then a year at uh, St. Peter's Parish in Charlotte before returning to studies again to do my doctoral studies now in city and regional planning. And again, I returned to the University of North Carolina and focused my research about citizen empowerment uh, in local governments. But uh, when I finished up, I did my dissertation defense and uh, two weeks later was the director of formation and studies for the New York and Maryland provinces. So it took a different uh, angle than I expected. And I was seven years in that role. And then when I finished that up, uh, I was came to the Jesuit conference as the socius uh, for nine years. Uh, and then uh, after that, uh, the position at Cara was open. And so I applied for it and was selected by the board. Uh, as I said, there was a 16-year interlude between my finishing the studies at uh, Chapel Hill and actually being more directly involved in some of the areas that I've been studying. So I've been here at Cara for the last 10 years. Some of the, uh, the the work that Kara does and your time in North Carolina, I, those in some ways are, are interesting parallels, just because, as you said, it's a state that if you looked at the North Carolina's population, um, it's one of the it's, it's a place where the church is growing. Right. I think yeah. maybe the biggest parish in the country is in North yes. Carolina or one of the biggest ones. But it, when you were there, it wouldn't have been a very Catholic state at all. But you have so many people moving south. You have new immigrant communities, as you were saying. So in some ways, uh, that experience in your own life reflects some of the things uh, you're studying now. Uh, and reporting on. Very much so. When I was a boy, we lived at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, Fayetteville area. And uh, at that time, the state was two-tenths of 1% Catholic. Wow. So very, very small. When I came in 1981, the, the state had just now reached 2%. Hmm. And so the Diocese of Charlotte had about 40,000 Catholics. Uh, today, uh, they're listing upwards to 300,000. Uh, over the years. And again, St. Matthew's Parish in Charlotte, which has been often said to be the one of the largest Catholic parishes in the nation. Uh, it was the last parish I worked with as director of planning for the diocese in its beginning stage. Hmm. So it was meeting in a movie theater wow. on Sundays for mass uh, and talking with them. And this would have been 1987 hmm. as they were just starting. So it was a handful of families in South Charlotte, and it's a huge campus and operation today. So 
My time there through the 80s, early 90s, as I would say, was the end of the home missions. And so this uh, very small places, you know, one parish, one county, uh, very small parishes. The bigger parishes were just beginning in Charlotte, Raleigh, Durham, uh, that are now so, you know, dominant and, and uh, uh, very engaged places. But uh, different world back sure. at that point. So before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I, I do want to ask you a bit about Cara, a little bit, mm -hmm. uh, to, if you could share some more specifics about uh, what Cara does and, uh, and its history. So Cara was founded about 55 years ago by Cardinal Cushing and a group of other uh, church leaders. And it was set out uh, deliberately to be a separate independent research center to serve the needs of the church in research. Um, I would say it was interesting, the initial office space for Cara was leased next door uh, to the Brookings Institute on Massachusetts Avenue in Washington. And that epitomizes kind of what the original vision was. Uh, well, decades go by, up and down, Cara moves, relocates a couple times. And ultimately, over the years, became a focus, as in the name, applied research. So that today, uh, we focus kind of on the practical questions the church leaders, pastoral leaders, come to us with. How do we understand, you know, X? How do we begin to pursue Y uh, in the Catholic population or ministry? So that becomes so much of our focus. And we usually have 40, 50 projects a year uh, that the center is engaged in. And so it's an independent research center. Uh, we affiliate with Georgetown University. Uh, but we're distinct from the university. We're distinct from the Bishop's Conference. Uh, and the staff here, it's four full-time uh, researchers, all with doctoral degrees in the social sciences, uh, myself and another uh, support staff. So we're a, a small group, uh, but we look at that kind of, what's the practical question? So care is not about grand ideas, you know, or broader issues of, the sociology of religion, but really about kind of practical issues for pastoral leaders. Could you give me, maybe use an example, um, how, what would the timeline look like? So someone comes to you, what might be one of the questions that are, are an interesting question that you've heard in the past couple of years? And then how, what, how do you go about seeking to answer that question? Let me try to think of an example. Um, so we had, uh, Recently, uh, the, the was the rectors of the seminaries in the United States, and their concern was on was the seminary education really preparing a newly ordained priests well, and so we worked with them and developed a survey instrument on this question in terms of you know how well did uh, the the seminary prepare them in different dimensions of priestly life. We sent the survey out uh, to some 3,000 uh, recently ordained priests, those ordained in the last five years. And we got back, well, like 1,500, 2,000 replies, good response. And what was interesting in the survey is the number of folks cited, you know, well, the seminary could have helped me with this or that. What came back very clearly, though, was the real need was we needed more help from their local bishop in presbyterate. 
uh, that the real issue and challenge and difficulty that they faced in their first years of ministry wasn't on the lack of preparation, but really more of the a lack of support that they were getting very practically uh, within their diocese or religious community. So it kind of gave a little different twist. It wasn't what we thought we were going to get. Um, but, but it highlighted some important key information as we did that. And a project like that, you know, we work with the, the group from the rectors. We have to work with all the seminaries to get the contact information to how to contact or diocese for the newly ordained priest, um, distribute the surveys, collect all the data, do the analysis. We had with that uh, a number of interviews with uh, the more recently ordained uh, to go with the quantitative data we had from the survey. So it's a, a rich array and a project like that will take a year or more to complete. Uh, and then taking up all of that data and then trying to provide some some basic takeaways or do you kind of leave that interpretation to those who are asking for the data? The interpretation or policy implications we leave to whoever commissions. So Kara's piece is to do the research, kind of explain the data and then leave it up to you. Uh, and that way we're not a policy group, we're not a think tank. Uh, we, we wanna provide the data to, to church leaders, decision makers. So let's talk a little bit of data, maybe at a bird's eye level, if you can do if you can do that. Just thinking about the the U.S. and the state of the church right now, there's just a lot of uh, commentary given about that, and people will say, "Oh, the church is dying. The num our numbers are shrinking," or "Oh, but in this other way, they're growing." And it's sometimes helpful to cut through some of that with some some numbers. So, what what kind of data do you have about <laughs> the state of the the church in the U.S.? Uh, part of it in the long term, and some of this is go up to the pre-pandemic because the, the pandemic has just thrown so many things up in the air, we're, we're not sure yet what's happening there. But uh, prior to the pandemic, the notable piece is that every year there are more Catholics than there were the year before in the United States. Most of that, not quite all, but most of that is due to immigration. So some of those numbers have come down, you know, as the immigration policies changed in recent years. Uh, but the, so there's that immigrant flow heavily from Latin America, but also from Africa and Asia. And generally, when you look at those populations, immigrant populations coming to the US, for many of them, the immigrant flow is actually more Catholic than the United States is. You know, so if you arrive, if you go to international arrivals at Dulles Airport, and people are getting off a flight from Lagos, Nigeria, the folks getting off that plane are probably more likely to be Roman Catholic than the people standing next to you waiting. Mm. Uh, so, and we have this, it's, it's true. And we often forget in the immigrant flow, one is that the Latin American immigrants are heavily Catholic, but also are, are many of the other uh, national groupings that are coming in. So that's a key piece. A big item that CARA provides in our data is on the context, understanding the context. So, so much of the narrative or media attention in the US originates in the Northeast, uh, and it's looking in that area of the Northeast or the Midwest, and they're seeing empty churches. 
the Catholic population for the last 30, 40, 50 years has been moving out of the Northeast and Midwest into the South and West. And so you see all these empty buildings, facilities uh, in the one part of the country. And then on the flip side, you go to the Carolinas or to Georgia, or Texas, and you find that the bishops, local folks, cannot build churches fast enough to accommodate the influx. So one example I would give is the uh, Diocese of Cleveland, you know, over the previous 30 years or so, in Cuyahoga County, just one county where the city of Cleveland is, we now count to over 200,000 fewer Catholics. 200,000. When we move from the same point to the Diocese of Atlanta, the Diocese of Atlanta has added in the same period of time more than one million Catholics. And there lies this kind of tale of two churches, as we would call it. And so in, in the Northeast Midwest, it's dealing with this either stable or shrinking population. In the South and West, this rapid growth uh, that they can't keep up with. And so we did a survey and we asked pastors, what's their biggest concern? And we happened to sort the answer back, this is an open-ended question, by geography. And if we took the Northeast, Midwest, the issues were finances, uh, a lower number of people coming to Sunday masses, uh, maintenance of the church building, you kind of go down this litany. We took those in the South and the West. Number one issue, parking. <laughs> number two issue, parking. You know, number three <laughs> issue, park. They just could not keep up with the, the people coming in. And it captures so much of uh, the dilemma. And so when we look at things and people say the, the, the church is decreasing or collapsing, well, it sort of depends where you are. And the reason isn't that people in Cleveland abandoned the faith of the church. They got a great job in Atlanta, you know, and they're, they're sending their kids to the Catholic school in Houston. Uh, this is just explains so many of the issues that arise. But, you know, that's uh, not a captivating narrative. You know, we'd rather pin something else on it. But the reality is that the data keeps harking back to, to that reality of mobility and migration uh, and the impact on the local church. People of, move, buildings don't. I did hear, story. I don't know if this actually happened, a group trying to, thinking about moving a church from somewhere in the Northeast, physically picking it up and, and bringing it uh, south There have somewhere. been one or two cases where someone right. has done that. So that, yeah, it's rather uh, expensive. Sure, uh, yeah. Um, so again, a lot of these surveys depend on people self-reporting. Do you have like a sense too? Do you ask about how, like, so people could say I'm Catholic, but then you start to ask, okay, so how often are you going to mass? So. That's always a big question. Are you seeing any changes in so people who would say, oh, I'm going to mass weekly or more or versus monthly or, or yearly? Are you able to, do you have any of that type of data? We do. And so the, the math, the mass attendance among self-identified Catholics so we ask you, what, what are you? And you say you're Catholic, boom, you're it. Self-identified Catholics, about a third, never even come to church, even on Christmas and Easter. But they still say they're Catholic. 
we have another 20% who come a couple times a year. We get down to maybe uh, uh, 40, 50% who come at least once a month or come weekly. The weekly is about 25%, give or take. And then the, the monthly, that would increase upwards to about 40, 45%. Uh, so about half the Catholics, in a sense, are actively engaged, meaning they know what their parish is, they know the name of their pastor, they show up on, on that end of it. And with it is, you know, on the monthly is the line we use for being an active Catholic. Because uh, it's recognizing the block of the population. It's either young, fam young families with little children, so they're not going to be able to make it every single Sunday uh, to Mass. Or it's also among the elderly and seniors who will find it difficult with the weather or how they're feeling that day. Uh, but you get about half. And that mass attendance has remained fairly stable in it. The challenge comes back to this piece of mobility is that when we have done studies and pastors or diocese will say, this is how many Catholics we have in an area. When we collect the data through national polling, other sources, we'll come up, you know, again, and we'll be identifying all of these Catholics who only show up periodically or never. And this is a big pool. Now, the real challenge right now is that as people move, they get disconnected, they got to get reconnected. And so a young family moves from Philadelphia to Houston. In Philadelphia, you could walk in and pick a pew, it's yours, you know, that there's plenty of space. They come to Houston and they find they have to get to the parish, they have to drive and they have to get to the parish 30 minutes early to get in the parking lot, much less to be able to find a seat. If you have two small kids and you're trying to manage this, how often are you gonna try before you sort of give up? Uh, or you slip into a piece of saying, well, we'll get there, you know, next week, next month. And it's a real challenge, I think, for American parishes and engagement it is we need to focus on the welcome the engagement, the belonging, inviting people in. And we go from a mindset where we think there are visitors being kind of the exception to really, no, 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 people are always moving and newcomers are the norm. And so there are there's a constant flow. The Catholic population is everything but stable. And we need to orient the parish to, to engage to welcome, to reach out, uh, as opposed to assuming that people are gonna find us. So, I mean, that's a, a big characteristic. And when we ask people, why are you not going to mass? Uh, what comes back is, well, I didn't feel welcome. It was boring. I wasn't engaged. I didn't get around to it. Oh, it just fell away. The hot button issues were way down the list. Hmm. The disengagement of individuals, particularly younger people, uh, tend to be these kind of very ordinary, practical, mundane type of items. 
which again does not necessarily reflect the picture of angry people about what the church has done or said on those as you're saying the hot button issues those big questions would be would be further down yeah and i just you, you, you know you mentioned philadelphia is a place where for so long people would say where they're from in the city by saying what parish they belong to, right? Yes. These, these huge buildings and just that was the culture and it's it's different. And so sometimes it feels like the church is a little slow to respond to the fact that it is not, it doesn't feel that way anymore in most places that it's just, this is just part of your identity the way it would have been 50 years ago, 70 yeah. years ago. And, and when we look to where people are moving to, you know, if you're moving into Philadelphia, the, the churches are, are closer. They tend to be smaller. You can get in the parking lot. You can get in the pew. Uh, but that's not where people are moving. Where they're moving to is Houston or Atlanta and massive parking lots, all these challenges. And it's from a distance we can look at it and say, you know, we've created unintentionally all sorts of barriers to reconnecting people. And the Catholic population, because of that mobility, we have to make that reconnection a priority uh, for parish life. Otherwise, we're just we're going to keep losing folks as time goes on. I want to ask you about um, the immigrant populations that you mentioned that are in some ways are keeping the church Catholic numbers high. More Catholics this year than last year, largely because of those communities coming in. I, I remember going to a presentation by uh, Hosman Ospino, who's a professor mm-hmm. at Boston College who studies largely the Latino church in the U.S. And they kind of start doing some generational things. And it looks like that maybe right at first when communities are arriving and the church becomes like the way that they find community in a new place, once you start going second, third, fourth, generation, the numbers of kind of young people staying in the church would start to mirror um, just, you know, white folks like me and my family. Do, do you see that uh, playing out as well right now? Because I think sometimes there is that kind of savior. Oh, the yeah. the Latin American immigrants will save the church. Well, like, I'm not sure if that's as, as simple as that. I don't know if we can just wait, wait around for them to, you know, save, quote unquote, right. church in places. Well, part of it just historically, you know, the, the vast majority uh, of of Americans with Irish surnames are not Catholic. And I think right now, even if if there's an Italian surname, it's just as likely not to be Catholic. Uh, And so with immigrant populations, you're facing the same item, you know, for better or worse, America really is very effective at assimilation uh, of peoples coming in. So with, with the immigrant flow, it's recognizing that there are multiple flows in very different reasons. So you you can have the immigrants who are coming, you know, for a better op- uh, economic opportunity and coming from situations that can be rather desperate. So when they're coming, the connection to the church often is key just to surviving, you know, and, and it's help with food and housing or some education, basic things, you know, how are we going to survive? So you come to the church on that. And there's another migrant flow, which is also fairly large, which are professional people who are coming here. And these may be particularly in healthcare areas, uh, nurses and doctors, healthcare workers, other uh, high-tech folks coming. And they're here to to, uh, belong to a parish, and so when they show up at a parish, they're not here looking, 
you know, for help to survive. They're here to be an uh, active Catholic and uh, they're ready to tell the pastor what to do like everybody else. Uh, so it, they're different groupings and it's our paying attention to the all the complexity of these populations and not thinking of this as kind of one grouping uh, is key. But with it is the, the strength is that the immigrant population brings a Catholic faith that is strongly ground, grounded in the family and culture. And the family and culture communicate that faith in so many ways. The already resident Catholic population, that family culture Catholicism may be greatly diminished and religious faith becomes communicated more formally you know, through uh, religious education classes, uh, you know, at the parish or other activities that way. And, and honestly, the, the family and the culture are, are much stronger and better communicators of faith than, in a sense, a formal religious education uh, for a broad population. So there is this sense of, in coming to the United States in the assimilation is it ends up weakening so much or so often that familial or cultural, cultural faith. And I think a challenge here, because simply because of the sheer numbers of immigrants, is in a parish, how do we capture and build on that as much as we possibly can? Uh, and that's often in the challenge in the United States. Every cultural group, uh, has its own devotions, uh, has its own uh, piety and practices, and do we embrace that and encourage it? Or does it sort of diminish, you know, with assimilation? So yeah, you get the a great variety here. And so what uh, you see some groups that stand out, one in particular would be among uh, Vietnamese American families. Uh, we find... Uh, the uh, sort of out of proportion number of young Vietnamese men and women who enter religious life, who enter seminaries, uh, out of the proportion of their population in the U.S. So there's a strong communication of faith there. I'd love to ask a follow-up about seminarians in general. You, you mentioned kind of working with young priests and studying that. So that is another thing we hear about in Catholic context is we have fewer and fewer priests and need to be praying for more and more vocations. Then sometimes I hear a, a counter argument is like, hey, well, we had in the mid 20th century, this explosion in the number of priests, which was higher than it had been before. And now it's just kind of coming back down to levels before that time. What, what have you learned about the state of uh, clergy in, in the United States uh, today? Well, a, a piece that, that's interesting and uh, d disturbing <laughs> is that uh, the number of seminarians for diocesan priesthood has been relatively stable pretty much over the last 20 years or more. It goes up and down a little bit, but th there's, there's not any uh, great decline. Um, if anything, there's been a little tiny little increase. The number of religious men, on the other hand, it still continues to decline. Uh, and so it's not quite stabilized in, in the same way. Uh, and then among sisters, again, is also the decline yeah, for the religious. So that's happening there. 
an added piece to it is when we look at the composition of the vocations, a number of comments will come back saying, oh, you know, the diocese has so many vocations, but they've gotten them from Mexico or Colombia or Vietnam or Nigeria uh, on that way. It, I would go back to, you know, the practical data. 27% of all adult Catholics in the United States are foreign born. So if you look at children or young adults, it'd be even higher percentage. If we're looking at vocations, those young adults coming in uh, to seminaries or religious life, we should expect if we're doing our job appropriately, 25, 30% are foreign born. By and large, that is not the percentage that's there often enough. Uh, but we have this grouping coming in this way. Uh, so it, it's quite a mix. And in religious life, we've just a recent study we published this earlier this year, which is looking at the impact of culture and ethnicity in vocations. Uh, and again, it's key because uh, right now uh, we're, we're getting a larger number uh, of young men and women uh, from these immigrant communities, um, but also they can find it a struggle to go through the formation systems that can be um, very kind of white Anglo in its orientation, the way it's carried out, and, and very often uh, very unintentionally so. You know, mm -hmm. people don't even realize uh, how heavy that cultural context is. Yeah. When you, you mentioned earlier, we're talking to young priests and being surprised that some said like one of the biggest things that they had felt was not necessarily about the suitability of their seminary education, but the type of support they were receiving from their bishop. I'm just curious for you in recent years, uh, things that you've learned that came back that other things that kind of defied your expectations or things that made you uh, curious or um, yeah, anything you've learned that surprises people when you tell them or surprises even you when you think about it. Well, I mean, that, that is a bit of a, a surprise and that the, the piece about younger priests. And I had a, a comment uh, from one bishop we were working with uh, doing a survey in his diocese. And he had mentioned back to me that he thought a particular struggle was that the number of the younger priests had not been kind of formed in parish life. And so, you know, had been altar servers and helping and working and a whole variety of things in the parish. And therefore, their desire or draw to the priesthood was through the example of their pastor, you know, and the parish priest. He said, the challenge comes is so many, you know, today, the draw is through uh, campus ministry is their real experience of faith or by being a focused min uh, minister or by, you know, JVC or something else. And he said, and then it, when they're ordained, it becomes a struggle because their image isn't the ordinary life of a parish priest. It's something different. And, and they struggle with the kind of the differences of what they thought they were, they were getting into and what they find themselves in. And when he made that observation, I thought, well, that's really, I mean, I thought very perceptive. And several months later, I'm doing a presentation in another uh, uh, archdiocese, 
And I reflected this other bishop's comment. The archbishop of this other diocese immediately picked up and was confirming. Mm -hmm. And he was agreeing in his own experience on the same way. So it, it's one of those little interesting insights as we're looking at the data uh, that comes back and saying, well, you know, I'm not sure if we would have paid as much attention in saying, you know, where is that that image sort of understanding of priesthood come from or of religious life? Hmm. And is it in a practical kind of lived way? Is it in a more theoretical image? Uh, so it's just kind of one little insight uh, that comes into to play there. Another one was um, we were trying to do a measure of uh, church attendance engagement during the pandemic. And one of our researchers, Dr. Mark Gray, he went through and he has used often the Google search terms to get indicators or a proxy indicator. And he went back and historically got the Google research terms for mass times at, at the local parish and how many were you know, generated you know, every day or week. And then also asking about mass online, you know, uh, on that part. Pre-pandemic, we were getting, you know, this steady, no, I forget the exact number, but it was overwhelmingly, it was all for the local parish mass times. Little number about mass online or on TV. When the pandemic comes, that splits. And so the local parish mass time suddenly declines the online ones suddenly increase. But when you look at the raw numbers and try to extrapolate from it, what he was uh, finding, and this is again a very soft, rough tool to look at, but the actual engagement of Catholics with mass uh, was remaining fairly stable. You know, and that the mass online was substituting the mass at the local parish. So he published it on the Kara blog postings uh, from a while back on that. Uh, but I mean, here again was another interesting way to look at that, how what's happening there. Uh, Kara's participating in this large uh, study uh, through Hartford Seminary, which is a five-year study looking at all the major denominations and the impact of the pandemic on church life. You know, do people come back? How do they re-engage? What's being done? What's the long-term consequence of the pandemic on, on, on church life across America? So Kara is part there as the Catholic partner in this research. And something like that, when will we have a better sense? I imagine to start, can you start that now? Will it take five years? I guess you can measure it all of those places. But for you, what is that type of time you're looking for to say like, okay, now we can start to get a pretty good sense of how this is affected. We're kind of in the middle of it now in some ways. Yeah. I think it'll probably not be until we get like a one, two years uh, post, you know, the, the large restrictions. Hmm. So we, we find, you know, parishes you know, pretty much filling up, not quite the way they did in the past, but there are still restrictions, you know, and people are concerned about coming to an indoor activity. Uh, so we often get a question and want something real quick, and we'll say, no, we'll know that in, you know, in three years. Uh, so we're measuring and, and kind of watching, collecting the data and seeing what's going to happen with that.
Well, we'll, we'll have you back in three years to see uh, what, what happened then. Uh, we had some many questions that way when Pope Francis was elected Pope. And right. folks came and said, with this impact and this impact. And we said, come back in five years and we'll tell you if there's any impact. Uh, on well, it's been more than... F- more than five years now. Any Francis effect? People talk about that a lot. Do you, is there anything you can? It's hard maybe to say this is attributable directly to him, but are there anything you've seen in, in numbers that show any kind of impact he's had? I'm not sure if we have anything that we could really latch onto. You know, I mean, there, there's a point of uh, it clearly has gotten the attention, particularly of younger adults, and then the focus on issues in terms of the environment you know, on uh, immigration, on acceptance of other people. Uh, so that has captured a lot of people's imagination. So it, it's very hard then to, to kind of measure. I mean, what's, you know, how is that a factor and uh, the election is not, you know, we, we just can't tell. Right. Do you so in terms of the things like the election? Another thing that's talked about in Catholic circles a lot is the Catholic vote. Then again, the other someone would say, well, there really isn't a Catholic vote exactly. Kind of seems to swing um, with just so many Catholics and so integrated and assimilated into U.S. culture. You can't really tease that out very well. Do you do any measuring of that of political affiliation or engagement uh, among Catholics? Uh, and what have you learned if you have? We do. So again, Dr. Mark Gray is the primary one who uh, focuses on uh, uh, elections and voting behaviors and that data. The first thing to keep in mind, you know, for identifiable, you know, religious bodies. So Catholics, self-identified Catholics are about 70 million. The number two denomination is Southern Baptist at 15. So we're five times bigger than number two. So uh, that, that always makes a big difference, especially if you look at electoral politics the way, you know, a small change in Catholic votes, you know, is an awful lot of votes. You know, a small change among the Episcopalians who number about 2 million uh, doesn't translate, you know, in, in, a, in a big shifting. So that would be a piece of it. And with the, the Catholic vote is then having to separate as most do now between the kind of white Anglo-Catholic and the Hispanic Catholic. And so you're seeing very different uh, voting behaviors in those two groupings. Uh, and with it, you're, you're finding that uh, the white Anglo-Catholics uh, would be uh, tending more towards a Republican politics, but not entirely. You know, so it kind of vacillates back and forth. Uh, but among uh, Hispanic Catholics, it would be more strongly Democratic. But then you get a piece that among Hispanic populations, you get a little more uh, conservative social views, uh, a little more liberal or progressive, you know, economic, you know, and other civic areas. So it's that mixing. But what's at play is that it's a huge body and little changes have big consequences across the country uh, uh, in this. Yeah, I just no. I was just always wondering, like, how much can you tell this is? Oh, you know, this is connected to faith versus, as you're saying, it is so big that just however the country is blowing, the Catholic vote will also blow that way. You know, in a particular year, um, that you see all these different stir- surveys, some that make it seem like kind of more kind of separated out from the the general 
national mood mm-hmm. or national trends and others that show no it really just seems to reflect our size and the fact that we're assimilated so uh, can you tell can, is it is it hard to do that in a, in a survey like that to tell how much is it really direct connected to someone's faith or religious affiliation versus just being in america and sw- swimming in the water we're all swimming in yeah well i mean there's again the assimilation is a powerful uh, effect what we'll find is that in we're where we're taking uh, generally the voting material that's available from Gallup, uh, National Opinion Research uh, Center, a number of other uh, data collection, exit polling. A- and there's a, a lot of different levels of polling. There's that that comes out on election day or the following day. And then there's more in-depth and nuanced polling that's available weeks and months later. And then when you start matching it up with the general social survey, so there are lots of tools that are at play. A lot of the media attention often goes to what's immediate on election day or just before. Mm-hmm. Those often, or leading up to election, uh, often have a larger margin of error. They're quicker, you know, they're not as in-depth or, or as complete. So it, it's a more careful analysis. And that's where we find... Uh, the nuance, and again, with the Catholic population, uh, somewhat unique characteristic is self-identified Catholics. Again, about one third will never darken the door of a church, but they say they are Catholic. And in the eyes of the church, they are Catholic. Uh, So we have that grouping, then those who come every now and then, then those who are fairly regular. When we start asking if we have the mass attendance scale and do this as a subgroup analysis, then we find that as you move down to the more regular attendees, they're shaping up more kind of uh, in line with Catholic teachings or stance on issues. Uh, but the infrequent you know, church attenders they still don't look like their next door Protestant neighbor. You know, they're still looking more like they're Catholic, uh, but it's not going to be as strong. So this is some of that nuance and where you're going to find the differences in some of that vote. So you got to kind of look culturally and ethnically, and then also the uh, whether they're regularly engaged, you know, in the Catholic community, or they're at a distance. Uh, from the Catholic community. So it's it's a notable difference that uh, we find in, in that area. I feel like you're giving some good tips for just general kind of consumption of information as we see different studies or things reported all the time, but some good warnings about, well, maybe give things a little bit more time, uh, kind of figure out what the study is saying. Are there any of those other kind of like, how do you look at data in your everyday life tips that you think are, are good for people to be aware of? Uh, well, often enough, it's, it's always to go down and read the, the tiny little footnotes that, that tells you how many people were surveyed and what the margin of error is uh, in that. And so that's often a, a clue. So when I was uh, following the... Uh, uh, I'm blanking on his name now the uh, 538 website. Nate Silver. Nate Silver. Yeah, when he would do his things of the different polls coming out and you would uh, check it and he was giving them a C, you know, or a C plus on it, 
compared to those he gave an A. And if you look back and forth, often the A ones, you know, they had a thousand plus respondents. The C one had 250. <laughs> you know, you get this, so you get the level. And a lot of the national polling, especially uh, if it breaks down by religion, if you have a thousand, which would be a standard number, 1500 in a national poll, self-identified Catholics would be a little less than a quarter of those people. So at that point, you're down to around 250 Catholics. So once you say Catholic, if you split this any other way among Catholics or between Catholics, you don't have a solid sample. You're down talking less than 250 people representing. And statistically, this just isn't a very solid sample. Hmm. So, I mean, I would say that in your basic course in statistics <laughs> would highlight that. Sure. But, you know, th that isn't always uh, uh, attended to kind of in news stories and, and whether. So the first piece of saying Catholics believe this and then saying now we're going to separate between white Anglo-Catholics and Hispanics. And I was like, no, 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 no. You don't have enough data to get that part of it. Hmm. So that that's a, a, a piece of, you know, what you're looking at in the data uh, for it. So you, I want to ask one last question before I let you go, which is okay. not a question I prepared you with. So you can, we can try to get at it another way if you don't want to answer it this way. But I, I am curious. So you, again, you say you get the data. You're not a policy think tank. You're not kind of proposing solutions to people. Though I, just imagining in a hypothetical, you are named a bishop tomorrow, sent somewhere <laughs> in the U.S. and have to start getting to know your community. Or you could imagine yourself as a pastor at a new parish. Mm -hmm. What are some, say, imagine you're a bishop. What are some of the questions you want to ask? What are some of the things you'll be looking for informed by all you have learned from the research? What are things, yeah, just even not to say come in and this is what we're going to do, but come in and what are some of the questions, things you want to be looking for when you're meeting with priests for the first time in your new diocese as a bishop? I think I'd probably focus on trying to get an understanding of how we welcome people. And are we doing anything, you know, in terms of outreach? Uh, and then with that are what's the, the multiple ways in which we engage individuals or families uh, in the life of the church? You know, on a sociological side, uh, in terms of uh, passing on the faith and, and the Catholic culture or worldview, uh, Catholic schools are probably the best thing going. Well, you're not going to be, we're not going to reopen thousands of Catholic schools. You know, it's just the money's not there, the finances. But how do we take the, the fabric of uh, that and reweave it? So this becomes the importance, you know, of things from, you know, a men's group, a women's group, a book club, a basketball league, uh, you know, whatever you can think of. Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, that there is a weave of Catholic culture that we that is is needed, and the evidence keeps going back and saying this is what's really important. Um, and how to to create that or encourage it, nurture it, and this understanding that we're not a stable community. You know, the population in our parish is always changing. So how are we engaging and welcoming, inviting? 
and you know, if I could go back and be a pastor in Winston-Salem again, I would do things differently. And those would be some of the items that I'd start paying a lot more attention to. Uh, and also on a piece of uh, uh, the devotional life in a parish. How do we engage one another in praying together? However that takes it. Uh, you know, and you sort of Go with what people respond to, uh, and whether it's adoration or a rosary or Stations of the Cross or a Bible group or whatever. Uh, I, I think too often we have something preset or a, or a package, you know, that this is going to do it all. And it's like, no, 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 it's a big, diverse group. Hmm. Uh, how do we engage them in just the most simple ways? Yeah, well, that's a big, big question that we could spend another hour on, and maybe we'll, we'll have you back to do that uh, sometime. But uh, <laughs> we've already kept you too long, Father Tom, and I really appreciate uh, kind of taking us into all these different things to think about. And um, I think it's a great, for me, a great challenge even to think about what are some of those preconceived notions I have about things in the world, and uh, can I can I test them or challenge them or always learn more? So I felt like I learned a lot, and I'm sure our, our listeners uh, will uh, agree. So thank you so much for coming on and for uh, all you're doing, and, and all the best uh, in your continued work at Cara. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for the invitation. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. <laughs>